Not everything will be finalized here. There'll be some technical follow-up work mm -hmm. next year, that's for sure. But we need the major decisions to make it operational now. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today we're in Madrid at the 25th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. These are the annual international climate negotiations. And we are very fortunate to have with us Paul Watkinson, who has had a tremendous amount of experience in these annual negotiations and currently plays a very important role, as he has in the past. Paul is currently serving as the chair of the subsidiary body for scientific and technological advice. And the acronym for that, SBSTA, is pronounced SUBSTA, part of the Secretariat of the UNFCCC. Um, before that, for many years, he was chief negotiator and head of climate negotiating team for France, and he played a key role, not surprisingly, in developing the Paris Agreement. Paul, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. So I'm really interested to hear your impressions of COP25, in particular, of course, Substa and mm -hmm. what's come out and what's going mm -hmm. forward. But before we get to that, um, our listeners will be interested to learn how you got to be where you are now. So I want to go back to the beginning almost. So tell me, uh, where were you born and raised? I was actually born in the UK, although I'm also French. So I've, got a, I've been working for the French government for, for 20 odd years now. Uh, mainly on, on international climate policy. But I've had a chance also to work in other areas over time. And so primary school and high school were where? That was back in the UK in mm -hmm. the Northwest. And I studied also at Cambridge University. But I've also studied in France at the École Nationale d'Administration, which is a, a leading school for French public public service. Exactly. And what did you study at Cambridge? I was a mathematician at the time, but that's a long, long time ago. After the L'Ecole, did you go directly into uh, the ministry? I've been working for the well, Environment Ministry, it's got different names over time, for a long time now, and in particular around these areas, which have always fascinated me, and I'd worked on them previously in different uh, incarnations. Okay. So, I know you're so immersed in it that one could talk at great length about the progress that's taken place here so far, but in a nutshell, and then we'll burrow down a bit, in a nutshell, how would you characterize the progress over now, I guess it's a, a bit more than a week? Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is a conference which has got two main features, I would say. One is a really negotiation-based focus. Uh, that's where we've been trying to work out the rules of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement around markets and non-markets, transparency, and a series of other technical issues that we need to take forward. But it's also a political conference trying to put us into this, particularly with the summit in New York a few months ago, and as we move into 2020, when we're hoping parties will raise the ambition of their climate action. Now, you mentioned Article 6, and that's the one part of the so-called rule book, yeah. um, putting flesh on the bones of the 13-page Paris Agreement, um, Article 6, that was not completed last year in Katowice, Poland, at COP24. Um, can you tell us uh, what's Article 6, why is it important, if it is, uh, and then why has it been so difficult to reach agreement? Well, 
I mean, sometimes people think Article 6 is about global carbon markets. I don't think it's quite that. It's about the way parties cooperate, and that includes markets. Mm -hmm. So if parties are going to exchange uh, carbon credits between them, we need a way of tracking that. So it's really about accounting for the use of that by different parties to make sure the system is credible, robust, credible, uh, ensuring environmental integrity and avoiding double counting. It does have a mechanism which takes over from what we had under Kyoto in the past, which would be a specific tool available to parties to develop a project which generates credit. Article 6.4. A 6.4. And then it's got the idea of non-market approaches, which I think is a really interesting idea. But I think the question is, what's the added value of having that under a UN system? Because that's basically about partnership, cooperation around specific challenges. So I think that you may be the first person who I've spoken with here who has the same perception that I do of Article 6.2. Sometimes people describe it as carbon markets, and worse yet, I've heard it described and read it described as country A selling or buying from country B. And my understanding, but now do correct me if I'm wrong, uh, my understanding is that individual countries put in place policies. It might be cap and trade, it might be carbon tax, more likely it's probably a performance standard of some kind. And then countries may decide to link, as on January 1st the EU will with Switzerland, almost did with Australia. And then if there is linkage, all of that is in a sense separate from the Paris Agreement. But then the question comes up, as I understand it, okay, after there are these transfers as a result of a linkage, how do we know that there isn't double counting? How do we know that they are meeting what they say they're doing under their nationally determined contribution? So Article 6.2, both the ITMOs and the uh, what is it, the adjustment for compensation, yeah, corresponding, adjustment. corresponding adjustment, that that's the accounting mechanism. So exactly. is that fair? I think that's it? an accurate way of putting it. And the real complexity in the system under the Paris Agreement is parties don't have the same type of commitments and objectives. Under Kyoto, there was a, a, a an absolute cap on what a party had. We can right. measure it to the nearest ton of CO2. Right. We set it out as a set of units, uh, um, assigned amount units. So when parties exchange those or other credits, we could add them up very accurately. Right. With the Paris Agreement, parties have nationally determined contributions. They take different forms. Some have very clearly defined ones we can quantify. Some, it's harder to do so. They can be growth targets. They can be sectoral uh, targets. They can even be policies in specific areas. Relative to business as usual. So the question is, how do we measure the type of exchanges between Mm -hmm. those different Mm -hmm. things? So with Kyoto, we had an accounting system which was based on the assigned amount unit and other credits. Keeping track of that was not difficult. You could have individual numbers, and with a, a transaction log, you could follow where they went. With a Paris Agreement, we don't have that centralized infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that's why keeping track of these changes, ensuring we're not getting double counting, and so we're keeping the environmental integrity of the system, requires us to invent uh, arrangements which can take account of a multiplicity of objectives and the types of engagement parties have. So that's technically very complex Mm -hmm. and we've been struggling because different parties are coming to this from different places. How to make something which will work for everyone. 
that's the big challenge of the, the Article 6 negotiations. And, and indeed, as you said, a, a big difference from Kyoto is that here, the actual form of the pledges, if I can call them pledges, yeah. the NDCs, uh, are exceptionally heterogeneous and yeah. are not by any means all in mass-based units with carbon budgets over a period of mm. time. Having said that, you know, since you brought up the Kyoto Protocol, um, although that was easier to measure, at least my view, which I had written in 1999 with Bob Hahn, I don't know if you've ever seen that, was that Article 17 of the Kyoto Protocol was never going to be important because of the fact that it's country-country trading. Countries are not cost minimizers. They don't have the information to cost minimize even if they wanted to. But it's up, it had to be to firms. And this is about, Paris is about firms would it be doing the trading, right? I think it's a mixture. Okay. I, th I think I think the the actual trades are between yeah firms, uh, the business entities yes. which are going to be engaged in that. But the Paris is about what parties do. Right. So the question is, how do we get the accounting mm -hmm. at the country level? Because mm -hmm. that gives us a credibility. France said we do this. We need to know if that's actually what we've done, given what we has been sold or bought from within our emissions. So the, th the difference is the actors on the ground, the economic actors are making the transactions, but the parties have to account for what happens. Mm -hmm. And if we've got a carbon market internally, that's not too difficult to manage. If you don't have a carbon market, it gets more complicated because you're using different mm -hmm. tools. And then of course you have the mechanism, the 6-4 mechanism, and that is particularly targeted at business, firms, uh, which will invest in a project and then seek to use those credits. So, I mean, that's again a different aspect of it, but it really gives a particular way in which the private sector can be involved. Now, I, I confess that I've been much more interested, engaged, and actually doing research and writing on Article 6.2 issues, sure. but Article 6.4 is obviously very important to many of the parties who are here at the negotiations. Is it fair to characterize 6.4 as the uh, extension of, in some sense, the clean development mechanism, or is that not fair? It is and it isn't, okay. uh, as often in these Tell cases. Tell us about that. And, and clearly parties use the experience of the CDM to think what could the mechanism under Article 6.4 be like and how mm -hmm. could it work. And we can build on it, the methodologies, the way in which you 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 develop the, the understanding of what is additionality. That's something we can build on. But of course, the challenge with the Paris Agreement, in Kyoto, we're in a binary world between developed countries mm -hmm. that had targets, right. developing countries right. that didn't. Now everybody is, has got an NDC uh, with this diversity of types. So a project is not necessarily only in a developing country. But if it is, uh, that country also has an NDC it has to account for. So how do you account for the use of the mechanism when you also have the, the, t the country has to account for their NDC. It adds a level of complexity we didn't have with Kyoto. And of course, the, the additionality of it is also compared to the policies the party is putting into its NDC. The calculations are doable, but they become more complex uh, because they're taking account of a more complex world. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it certainly seems it would be more complex, but given the fact that the project is taking place in a country that does have compliance responsibilities, it seems that the horrible additionality problem 
that we confronted with the CDM might not be the same because at least there is something you can measure performance against. Is that fair? I think part of it is also then the multiplicity of those NDC types. They're not the same. Right. Uh, and we haven't yet got into how in detail that will work. I think this is something we'll, we're going to be in a learning process in the next few years. We need to get this going. We won't yeah. get it going as a perfect system. Right. If we try and get it perfect, we will. Each, everyone has an idea of what's perfect, and then we don't agree on it. So we need something we can work with, something which is decent, a good set of rules, and then we can test how some of these things work and learn and strengthen it over time. So I think these challenges, such as how we improve our understanding of additionality, particularly in a world where all parties have targets, uh, is going to be uh, something we learn and improve in the coming years. Now, it's Tuesday afternoon here in Madrid. Um, is Article 6 going to be tied up with a bow and agreed to by Friday afternoon or, God forbid, if there's an all-night session sometime on Saturday? Let's say Friday, uh, yes, the optimistic at this stage. Um, I think what we've done in the first week, and as Chair of Substar, I had the oversight of that. I've now handed that over to the presidency, and they're going to take it forward to some ministers to help them from New Zealand and South Africa in the next few days. But I think the challenge we've been trying to do is to get away from the real complexity of this topic and an accounting system, a mechanism, and then a work program on non-market approaches, and start to focus on what are the real questions that need to be solved. There are technical elements where some very good ideas, but we need to choose which ones are we going to use. And then there are some quite fundamental issues about the way the accounting system works, about the linkage from the old system under Kyoto into the new one. What do we let through? Methodologies broadly with some improvement, projects, why not? But units, uh, units from the past coming in, dilute what we're trying to do in the future. And then we've got debates on how we can use a sort of taxation on it to generate funding for adaptation and a few other questions we also need to solve. Was that on 6-4? Uh, I, I know that's there. Are you referring to 6-2 as well? Well, this is a question about how the, the voluntary cooperation on Article 6 yeah. helps us to mobilize funding for adaptation. We have an arrangement under the mechanism right. which is agreed that we'd have a taxation on those credits to, to fund the adaptation fund. The question is, should that also be used for the exchanges which we're accounting for between parties and within the, some of those exchanges, they're bilateral cooperation, which is quite similar to the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Some of them, it's more the reconciliation of, say, carbon markets in different countries, where you're tracking very different types of changes. But I think the question is less, does this apply to that? But how could the overall action we're doing generate resources for adaptation? So we, we've got to solve these issues. We've got a few days left. They're technically complex, but I think what we've done is we've isolated the key points that need to be dealt with now. There's a bit of noise, uh, as usual, in a negotiation text, particularly when several hundred negotiators have got near it. Uh, but I think we've been trying to isolate it, begin a higher level, more political discussion on these issues. And I think that's to set up the choices we now need about how it operates. Not everything will be finalized here. There'll be some technical follow-up work mm -hmm. next year, that's for sure. But we need the major decisions to make it operational now. Now you mentioned taxation, at least in my mind, I think well, that there's a price taxation, there's a quantity taxation instrument, there's the overall mitigation, and there's the yeah. share of proceeds. Um, both would have, if they were Article 2, 
would have the effect of possibly doing some good things, as you've mentioned, yeah, generating revenue mm-hmm. for adaptation, uh, uh, perhaps achieving greater am- ambition, um, but they also have the possibility of discouraging trading. Um, how do you view those trade-offs? Yeah. Well, I'm using the term taxation as a simple word. It's not That's, the word I use the use, same word. But I people know, understand it. Yeah. People understand it. Yeah. You take something out of what's right. produced. Right. I mean, you can do it in different ways. And in under the Kyoto Protocol, we took 2% of credits right. and put it in a fund, which mm-hmm. then had to monetize it. Mm-hmm. And that proved difficult at mm-hmm. times, particularly when demand dropped off. Right. So mm-hmm. there was also another system to fund the running costs and that was actually uh, you know, a fee that had to be paid. And that actually ended up generating more resources than the, the, the taking a certain percentage of credits. Mm-hmm. So there's a debate about what's the best way to get resources from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a taxation in terms of credits or a fee to be paid for using it. And I think parties are still thinking what's the, mm-hmm. the they're looking at options around there. Maybe they'll think of several as that moves forward. Of course, the higher you fix that level, the question is, does that start to be dissuasive? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you can have other ways in there as well. And then you have, as you were saying, two different issues. One is about generating revenue. Mm-hmm. And we said we'd use that revenue to fund adaptation. The other is, how do we create greater ambition through this? Because if trading or markets are used just to move things around within a, a set of given, a given set of ambition, and particularly if that ambition isn't very high, which is the problem with the NDCs yes. we have today, right. it doesn't help us mm-hmm. overall, particularly if we're just optimizing in a fairly short mm-hmm. time scale. So how do we build in something which will ramp up the ambition? Again, some parties, particularly the island states, are saying we should take out some of each exchange. But that goes down badly with many in this process who think yes. it will simply dissuade the use. Right. So that's a big area of disagreement still. You know, we've had experience with that. So in the United States, in the emissions trading program in the early 1970s, yeah. long before the SO2 allowance trading program, uh, environmental advocates wanted to get something out of this very early form of trading. So the government, through regulation, put in place the 20% rule. So if I trade 10 tons to you, you, you only get 8 tons. And the result was it did uh, discourage trading. Now, you know, there, there was almost none. So I worry that there, you know, it's one of these things if I learn from my mistakes and I can repeat them exactly the same again. But of course, parties are also thinking of other options there, using conservative baselines uh-huh. when you're working out, okay. particularly this is in the mechanism area, right. how, do you, how do you calculate yeah. these things? Yeah. And obviously, if you're using uh, uh, the most accurate system, you get it right, mm-hmm. but that doesn't exist. So how do you make sure that every time you're doing a calculation, you're doing it in a conservative way? That's another approach which many parties are pushing in this process. So thinking more broadly than the negotiations, mm-hmm. um, but thinking about the Paris Agreement, um, when you leave these hallways and get out in the world, whether it's government officials that are not necessarily working on climate or it's people in private industry or people on the street, you hear much more diverse views about the Paris Agreement to whatever degree it's known. And I'm not even referring to climate skeptics. I'm not referring to Trump and all of that. So even a lot of my colleagues that are are passionate about climate change, um, their view is not positive about the Paris Agreement. And my take on that, which I want to hear yours, is that the very element of the Paris Agreement, which has brought about this incredibly broad 
uh, scope of participation of what is it, 98% approximately of global emissions with associated countries compared to 14% under the current commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol, that element is the fact that it was this bottom-up, nationally determined contributions. It, that very same element, however, they will point out, that's what produces the lack of ambition, global commons problem, free rider issue. There's the trade-off. So I have a particular view you know, which is a positive one about the Paris Agreement in terms of that trade-off. I'd love to know yours. Okay. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very important question. I can remember when we were negotiating Paris and trying to set it up, we really felt it important to get a universal agreement. Uh, we'd had Kyoto, which reflected part of the system, only part and less and less, particularly once the U.S. never came on board and countries like Canada and Russia and Japan uh, didn't take targets. Um, so finding something with everybody in it was vital. I can remember the Indian Environment Minister calling it a game changer that we use the nationally determined contribution. It allowed countries like India and others to come on board and not feel threatened by that. The Kyoto model they weren't willing to take part in. So whilst in a theoretical model you can say everybody having a rather top-down target defined in the same way, uh, even sharing our burdens, you can model that sort of thing, but trying to get parties to agree it, it's just, it just doesn't deliver. So having that bottom-up approach was critical. And I think for me, Paris does four or maybe five things. The first, it sets the overall direction of travel. That's where we've got two degrees, one and a half degrees, a reaching a peak in emissions, which we still haven't quite done. We must do, and then coming down to neutrality by the middle of the century. So that's an overall ambition of the system. And I think that system is ambitious because two degrees, one and a half degrees is very high ambition. We're not on track. Uh, and I actually think what is accomplished by the initial set of NDCs if they were fully complied with is actually quite impressive. I mean, it's, in terms of what it does, in terms of predictions of temperature It's changes. much better than where we were without them. Yeah. But it's a starting point. Yeah. And that's where the universal side came in. Everyone's on board, everyone has an NDC. The question is, how much will we strengthen it mm -hmm. each time we go through yes. this? And so the third strand is then the centralized piece, the transparency system, mm -hmm. the global stock take, and the idea that all parties will update their, their NDCs every few years, every five years is essentially the cycle we built in. We left flexibility in there. It's not obligatory because the Paris Agreement isn't, but it drives it forward. It creates a presumption that we're going to go there. The big test we're going to have is next year, 2020. Mm -hmm. See how many parties ramp up seriously their NDCs. We know some, unfortunately, aren't on board. The US, we know, will be leaving, and clearly we can't expect ambition there. We have another, a number of other big countries. We have big question marks. But uh, the fact that we have a, a, a significant number of parties using this to strengthen, and hopefully others will then come on board, and then the final aspect is cooperation. That's where the Article 6 comes in, but it's also financial support, technology cooperation, and capacity building, which are essential right. for, for building this uh, ability to act. So by building ability and facilitating, particularly for the, the weaker uh, and poorer countries, building the infrastructure which is really needed mm -hmm. and the institutions to strengthen climate policy, the cooperation in a wider sense uh, the action agenda we launched in Paris, which allows other actors to come on board. It's more an ecosystem which is created around there. So setting the direction, allowing everyone to participate, 
having a centralized structure which at least gives us common information and then cooperation in the broader sense. For me, that's what we're trying to do with Paris. Mm -hmm. And to make it work involves political commitment. Many countries are showing that. Some, unfortunately, are not. And I think the big test is how we can collectively ramp up. Uh, so we go from somewhere maybe three degrees, uh, if we're lucky, towards real ambition, which brings us progressively down each time towards the two degrees or even better, uh, the one and a half. So you're referring to the overall ambition, the aggregation of it, and you mentioned the U.S. Uh, now submitted withdrawal process yeah. for uh, approximately a year from now. Um, back in June 2017, or in May, June 1st was the announcement at the White House uh, of the withdrawal by President Trump. I, um, I made the argument with Ban Ki-moon. We had a op-ed at the time, strong arguments of why the U.S. shouldn't pull out. Just play with your NDC if you want, but stay in for God's sake. And what concerned us, what motivated us, was not you at the effect on U.S. emissions, because the Trump administration has already taken care of that with domestic policy. It was what would be the effect, not on the EU, because I think it might make the EU more aggressive, but rather on the large emerging economies, China, India, Brazil, Korea, blah, blah. Um, my perception from the outside is that it has not had the effect of causing them to step back, although there's a sense in which I guess we don't know because we don't know what they would have done otherwise. What's your perception of the effect of the U.S. announcement potential likely withdrawal on those key countries? I think in terms of their policies, it hasn't forced, uh, hasn't encouraged other countries to back out or to support less strongly what we're doing under Paris. What it does is it creates a lack of trust and a sense that there's always a sense in the climate negotiations or always had a strong north-south dimension, yes. um, which is sometimes problematic. And with Paris, we went beyond it by having all parties with the same type of participation. But the sense amongst many developing countries in this process that the U.S. withdrawal is a sort of betrayal of what we were trying to achieve uh, and that developed countries are still not standing up for what they're supposed to have done. And I don't think that's entirely true, um, but at the same time, it's the feeling you get. So it hasn't fed in to, it hasn't, the US withdrawal hasn't encouraged other major economies to pull out. On the contrary, everybody still seems to be very strongly in. Domestic policy changes happen. Uh, the question will be, and I think the big test will be, how far those countries really change their policies when we move into 2020 uh, and the changes, yes, the updates exactly. of the NDCs. Right. I think if we'd had a US administration putting a revised, strengthened NDC on the table, that would have been something others yeah. would have been trying to show they're coming part of. I think the fact that they're not doing so means the rest of us have to stand up. Yes. Uh, and of course, I very much hope that will include the large right. emerging economies yes. very much playing a role. We're right. all looking to where China will go, of course. But remember, the US, if it does pull out in uh, November 2020, could be back in in late January of 2021. Well, of course, at that stage, the U.S. would then also have to develop a new NDC. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things is how far uh, one of the criticisms I did hear of the NDC of the U.S. done before is it didn't involve a great deal of collaboration and uh, ownership beyond the administration. Mm -hmm. How far do you build that support? How far do you, you, you associate stakeholders in developing this sort of thing? Mm -hmm. I guess it would take some time if the US came back in to do that. But I think it might be interesting that that happened. And I think for all parties, how do we go beyond things which are just targets 
uh, to something which actually gets ownership and buy-in from the economic community, but also from the population. And I think this is one of the big challenges we have in future climate policy. It's not just a figure. It's not just an announcement. Mm -hmm. It's something which affects all of our lives, our economic prospects, and the way we organize our societies. And that is going to be a challenge for the future. If the opposition candidate, if the Democrat is elected in November 2020, one day after the election, one of the primary activities of the transition period will, in fact, be on Paris, which my recollection is that there's a 60-day period after you withdraw before a country can rejoin. I can't remember the timing now, but it's it's short. (laughs) It's short. So, uh, On the other hand, it does create the sense that there's uncertainty. You can come in, you can come out. That doesn't create, again, it oh, undermines yeah. the sense right. of ownership. Because right. how can we engage with someone who, who comes in, goes out, right. comes in? What, what's happening next? Right. Uh, what's the long term? And right. that does potentially create a, right. a tension for the future. So I want to think at the end here, I want to think more broadly than the international negotiations even and the Paris Agreement even. Um, I'd just like to know, to what degree are you op- optimistic or pessimistic about the progress on climate change that we all in the world are making? Well, I think in uh, several of my meetings as chair of Substar, I've started by putting the Keeling curve on the the screen, the curve which shows the the increase in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. And it's just continuously going upwards. You get this wonderful little oscillation during the year, which is the, the change in vegetation, but the trend is still up and it hasn't stopped. And until we turn that trend, stabilize, and potentially even bring it down, we are gonna have greater and greater problems of climate impacts. Warming, a warming world we'll have to adapt to, and in some cases we can't adapt to, or we'll have to deal with the loss and damage that causes. Mm-hmm. So I think if we look at that, it is the, for me the key indicator. Mm-hmm. Are we anywhere near on track? And unfortunately for the moment, we're not. Uh, so that's our biggest challenge. Uh, I think the other side is how do we really start to build economies and societies which are different. That's why I think there's more optimism. Mm -hmm. We know there are things we can achieve. Mm -hmm. We've seen enormous transformation just in the last 10 years in terms of the costs of renewable energy, solar in particular. Uh, We're seeing issues around electricity storage. Uh, I think issues around the way we design our cities are going to be central to the next stage. So there are things which are going the right way. There are things which are definitely not going the right way. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to put those together and think, have we yet got the type of policy frameworks, irrespective of whether the Paris Agreement lives up to its need and potential, at a national level, at a local level, can we develop those fundamental policy frameworks? Until now, a lot of the time, we have been in marginal changes. We really have to think, where are we? 40, 50 years down the line, what type of society are we living in? What type of cities are we living in? Mm-hmm. And do we have the policies to get us there? And that's one of the other tools we put in the Paris Agreement, is thinking about long-term strategies for that transformation. Mm-hmm. And that starts to bring us into the social dimension much more. How do we manage the transition? How do we deal with employment factors? How do we deal with other social aspects of that? So it's opening up a new area for us to think about much of which is not at an international level. It's often very local. Um, So am I optimistic? I don't like being optimistic or pessimistic. I just think we have to deal with this challenge in front of us. Otherwise, it's going to be a really nasty place we'll be living in in the next few decades. That's a a perfect place, really, to bring our conversation to a close. Paul, thank you very much for having taken time to be with us today. 
Uh, our guest today has been Paul Watkinson. He's the chair of the subsidiary body for scientific and technological advice, the SUBSTA of the UNFCCC, and a longtime key observer and key participant in these climate negotiations. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.